As the U.S. officially draws down its presence in Afghanistan, the Taliban has wasted no time in reclaiming territory, forcing the American military to send in 5,000 Marines to defend its Kabul embassy from becoming overrun. Meanwhile, the domestic war on vaccine hesitance has brought about even more draconian measures on travel and employment. Tonight, the full crew comes together to discuss the ever-present reminders that great power, corruption, and incompetence are lethal combinations. Well, I'm not a crook. I've burned everything I've got. A military-industrial complex. We are here to destroy the control over the industry of other people. I did not trade arms for hostages. It's been nine years. The police Hi, the sound you just heard was the last chopper out of Afghanistan, and this is the myth of the 20th century. Live uh, from a... Kabul. Yeah, it's, uh, it's getting a little bit feisty in here. Uh, honestly, I'm, I'm not really sure how long our... Uh, our Sprint uh, wireless connection is going to hold I'm, out I'm here. I'm actually but... here with a with a member of the Taliban. Uh, Alhamdulillah, Bismillah. You know, it's, it's, we're having a great time here. You know, we just we just figured out like every State Department goon is a Bakabazi boy enthusiast. Man, like we're finding all kinds of crazy shit here. Just wanted to brief everyone real quick. I just I just figured out I have it now down to a science exactly how much opium can fit into an 80 liter duffel bag. You know, the safest place to carry heroin, just like a camel in the desert inside your body. But literally Hank by the time of by, grace, by the time <laughs> you hear this show. I'm going to make the uh, the dire prediction that uh, Kabul uh, will have fallen and or like there will be a heavily armed uh, enclave, like basically shoulder to shoulder uh, sitting outside the uh, the embassy as it gets like intermittent mortar fire. Some great visuals inbound, but, uh, you know, press F for uh, the Afghan latte and uh snapchat uh cast you know we we talk a lot about history on the show but this is incredible history in the making and uh it's really a sight to behold to watch a group of people namely in this case uh, the american military establishment and the intelligence services of apparently every major western country um, completely dropped the ball. Uh, potentially more embarrassing than the uh, than uh, I think any intelligence failure of the last couple of decades. 
I, I don't really quite know how to encapsulate it. Uh, if you're hearing this, likely you'll know the ultimate fate, but we are anxiously waiting to learn about what is about to go down with the uh, uh, embassy, this massive armed fortress in the center of the ancient city of Kabul. And uh, as of now, there are 5,000 American combat troops being deployed to protect this massive fortress and all of the um, hopefully soon-to-be suicidal State Department goons that live within it. And uh, all of their various intelligence and money and assets and informants are uh, being tucked away inside awaiting uh, an endless stream of helicopters to take them to presumably one of the fleets, uh, potentially Pakistan, potentially all the way to Germany or or Qatar. Um, So you probably see a great – if you're in that area – and I think we might have one or two listeners that are just playing the numbers. Um, look to the Shout skies. To boy, Ahmed. I, look uh, to the skies. You will see all kinds of amazing sights over the next three days. You will see an well, empire it, crumbling in real time. I have, a, I have a severe question. Like when you talk about flying 5,000 people, which is like you know brigade strength, like half of a division – uh, I guess a few, quite a few brigades. I guess about five, if I uh, have my like back of the envelopes right. That's so. The point uh, fifty transports is to get the people out of Afghanistan, and runways uh, are runways are kind of one way. You know, it's not like you know the like the highway whatever where it's like oh i drive this way on the side this way on the other side it's not a roundabout planes landing like and it's not like they're doing a fucking combat jump i would just the hilarity of like oh yeah we're gonna jump out of parachutes and like it's time to assault this uh, surrounded position from the inside. I'm, uh, I'm like, I'm sure they're great at their job, uh, but not ideal circumstances. And uh, there's a reason just why, like, the idea of the airborne assault uh, doesn't really exist anymore on a large unit basis. This is what this so, is what those dumb like Avengers movies have done to people. Like every member of the 82nd Air Force is going to think he's Captain America, and he's gonna yeah, he's just hey, I got my rifle. I'm like hitting the ground at like 20 miles an hour, just you know, dumping mags all all the way from a thousand feet up. Oh like what, what happens is that. And like okay, disregarding the combat jump, which just I don't think anybody's stupid enough to do that. So like you get off your C one thirty, like granted it, it, they do like train like get off the plane, get your shit, get where you need to go in reasonably short order. But it's still like okay, you're you're forming defensive positions, you're trying to find all your shit, like get everything coordinated while you're literally being surrounded like they are currently surrounded and then to try to get everybody back on the same plane like i'm not sure how much they plan in like a chaotic exfiltration of like 
thousands of personnel besides themselves. I, I think that we're already in like Mogadishu territory. And I think that it's it's inevitable. So a couple things, uh, there's been a couple more developments over like the past 20, I think 48 hours, particularly the last like 10 hours. Um, number one is that the Taliban have um, apparently either convinced or had infiltrated the ANA, which is the Afghan army, uh, years ago. And it seems like there's been a force multiplier effect by a factor of five to ten. It's hard to tell. But what was originally a sort of vanguard force of the Taliban that was going to launch a series of probing assaults on Kabul has turned into the Taliban are inside the city and are now kind of swiftly moving through the city. They've apparently already freed one of the major prisons in the city that had hundreds of Taliban operatives inside of it. Inexplicably, we were keeping Taliban operatives inside the capital city. Strange decision there. <laughs> um, but now there's sort of an endless amount of potential soldiers uh, rapidly approaching the heart of the city. Uh, currently, it's not known where certain members of the Afghan government are. Uh, allegedly, several of them have fled to Uzbekistan and Tajikistan. Um, if I were the Uzbek and Tajik governments, I would immediately um, tell them to get on a plane and go back. Do not want an angry Taliban trying to hunt down uh, this people they consider basically uh, traitors uh, you know, resting in your country, especially if you border Afghanistan. But no one knows right now where uh, Ghani, Ashraf Ghani is. He's the um, sort of puppet president of the country. Uh, no one knows where key members of the Afghan military are. No one knows where several of these supposed badass kind of CIA-backed warlords are. Uh, one of them, Doltsam, uh, I think that's his name, he is in Uzbekistan currently. But um, several of these guys have just vanished. My theory is that some of them are in Kabul, and some of them are probably at the embassy, which is why this has turned into such a catastrophe. Um, and the U.S. government is probably secretly attempting to, similar to the Shah of Iran moment, for those of you not familiar with the, uh, the drama of the Iranian hostage crisis, uh, part of what really incensed the Iranians, other than us being there, um, was this business with the Shah. And our predilection to get the Shah out first before getting any of our um, State Department goons out uh, kind of really inflamed the situation on the ground, you know, rapidly overwhelmed the security forces at the embassy, and uh, you know people got captured almost immediately. Uh, I think that they're trying to stave that off, which is why they're dumping 5,000 Marines into the situation, which – could make the situation 100% worse and that the whole city could turn on you, uh, which is why I think it's a Mogadishu problem. Did, did, did you guys see, uh, I don't know if you've seen it, but I put it in the chat, uh, the Taliban apparently captured uh, either equipment or the equipment from dead U.S. soldiers. Um, 
the uniforms of the Americans and actually restaged the Iwo Jima flag raising uh, as a propaganda coup <laughs> oh, yeah. against saw, the U.S. military. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, a while ago, we we're talking like days. Like, literally, you can't walk fast enough. You can't even really take a Toyota over shitty roads fast enough to accommodate the advance. Like, it's basically somebody hears the Taliban coming and is like, yeah, that that's us, our uh, my my Sharia brothers. That's that's great. We're uh, in fact, we've already conquered the city, so there's no need to come in. Uh, it's fine. We got some spare flags here. Just go around and uh, you know be on your way. Yeah. Well, there was an interesting note that someone made, and that how the Taliban has approached this, which is I think part of the the speed at which that they've uh, accelerated their control over the country. Uh, the Taliban have chosen a strategy of basically remediation, where they're going to these towns, they're going to these provinces of Afghanistan, most of which are already Pashtun, so there's not much of a bridge there. Or I'm sorry, you don't need to build much of a bridge there. Um, but they go to them and they say, look, the Americans are leaving. The ANA is corrupt, and you know it. Ghani is a corrupt fool. He, you know, he bows to these Satanists from America. And uh, why don't you work with us? And in fact, it'll be very different from how it was 20-odd years ago. We're not interested in controlling your town. We just want you to kind of work with us a little, and we want to pass through. We're on our way to Kabul. And a lot of these towns and villages and a lot of these little communities or even the cities, it's sort of, okay, sounds good. Yeah, the ANA sucks. Yeah, the government in Kabul sucks. It's run by Uzbeks and Hazara and people that hate us. And we're totally fine with you going there and tearing their heads off. Sounds good. And so the, it seems like the Taliban kind of mosey on through. It's like, okay, Kandahar under control, Herat under control, every single major city under control, Jalalabad under control. Now it's time for actual violence. So something that's been very remarkable is the low level of violence in the last few days, and really the past few weeks. You would think if you've moved across hundreds of miles of territory and claimed that you've killed lots of people, some kind of like you know, uh, Ostfront <laughs> warfare with the with the Wehrmacht, you know, but, you know, stomping through villages and getting in these huge firefights and battle for each city, kind of like a, like a house to house battle. It couldn't. It could be anything but that. It's mostly uh, very isolated shootouts, um, maybe an execution here or there, and for the most part, the locals, the the local detachments of the ANA, the local militias. They're already on board with what the Taliban want. So why not just join? Why you know, not just kind of go with the wind? And by the way, hey, come here. Come here, let me show you something. The Americans, they left behind a giant weapons cache that's probably like $200 million worth. Yeah, they just left it for us. You know, there's like an, there's a couple MRAPs over there. There's like 40 sniper rifles over there. We got some night vision goggles here. Why don't you take them? Take them, just take them. Go to Kandahar and 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 use them there. And this is how it's kind of unfolded the last two weeks. So I think this is why 
they've decided at the last minute that it's very unlikely they're going to be able if if the Taliban decide they want to do this, they're not going to be able to hold the uh, the embassy because these like the these way. these guys have rolled in with bulldozers with M- man pads. They've rolled in with not just all their old school weapons, their rock and body armor, night vision goggles. They've cut the utility lines. Like this is a whole different Taliban. This is, you know, an, an updated real Taliban that is ready to fight and basically took over the outskirts of the city in half an hour and is now cut all lines of communication and entryways in and out. It's a, it's a complete military catastrophe for the United States to have been put in this situation. No one apparently saw this coming. It. it it kind of boggles the mind. The only my original theory was I mean, they somebody got a, must have bought the Kool Aid on our our brave friends and the Afghan National Army because I mean everybody sort of had a tacit acknowledgement that yeah you know eventually probably the Taliban whatever but I guess the impression was that there was going to be a sort of a low enough volume of conflicts. And given the amount of money that we're still shoveling in to the app, like we just withdrew troops. It's not like we cut them off South Vietnam style. Like they still have plenty of stuff. They still have plenty of trainers and training uh, for whatever that's worth. You know, they still got their fueled up uh, super Tucanos. But (laughs) it turns out. Love uh, that plane, by the way. Yeah, it's a it's a good plane. Uh, you should uh, definitely pick one up if you're in the market. Uh, I hear they're going to be hitting surplus pretty soon. They're popular uh, in Brazil. Yeah, but I mean, I guess the the snowball effects uh, and that sort of feedback loop, uh, the speed with which that feedback loop operated, was what was a little bit surprising. Like it was unclear to me why you even operate an embassy if you plan on leaving that's just a bunch of stuff that's extremely vulnerable that doesn't need to be there that you're going to have a sticky situation extricating anyway well the amount of of hubris entailed is like well of course the united states of america has to have like a couple of thousands of liberal arts majors processing the final gay visa for the benighted afghan lgbt population of course i mean what is an empire for if not for making sure that the absolute final bakabazi visa gets granted on time and under budget well this begs the question you know what was this all for like you're asking why did we build a massive fortress worth hundreds of millions of dollars uh all the infrastructure surrounding it i I think you just answered your own question well yes that's what i'm getting at all the infrastructure to it we armed it you have contractors who are making a killing defending it badly apparently what was the point of all this if the plan was always to leave if you know this is this was the pitch this has been the pitch for 20 years yeah we're not gonna stay we're here to like whack a guy 
oh, you know, we're not going to stay, but we're here to help build a government. Oh, we're not going to stay, but we're here to make sure human rights are respected. Oh, we're not going to stay, but we have geostrategic interests out of the Kaibar Pass. Just kind of kept creeping and creeping, but we're not going to stay. We're not going to stay. The whole point was just like, let's just spend a bunch of money. <laughs> let's spend a bunch of money. Let's enrich every smug idiot that works for these contractors from Dulles to Arlington. And every single one of them is going to buy a new multi-million dollar home. Every single one of them is going to get an in-ground pool. And every single one of them is going to give the maximum individual campaign contributions to every single presidential candidate, senator, whatever, that continues supporting this stuff. It's like the greatest racket in human history. Kabul goes through Falls Church. It is unreal how expensive this war was, by the way. I mean, it's is it confirmed that this was a two trillion dollar war? I read four trillion. I think well, was the four trillion figure? Isn't that from like Afghan and Iraq combined? I always thought that it was two. I'll uh, I'll look up the source, but when we did our show with the uh, special forces guy. I recall saying something like four trillion, but I'll look up the source. So two trillion dollars. What do you? What could you have done? <laughs> Think about it like this: Could we have just given the Taliban two trillion dollars on September twelfth, two thousand one, and said we'll give you two trillion dollars if you promise to be our ally and you hand over this guy that we're looking for? Like, would that not have just been the better play? Well, no, because they literally the, uh, offered us the that, Beltway would have. The better play would have been like you could, you, you could have dropped like two trillion dollars on Funko Pops. Oh, they they offered to do it for free. By the way, like yes, we, they did. They re, they were like, look, it's important to be hospitable to house guests. However, uh, this is a bad house guest, and we wouldn't object to somebody walking in the back door and grabbing them out. And the U.S. was like, nope, sorry, hungry for blood, gotta humiliate you now, hope you like gay stuff. And they're yeah. like, well, not, I mean, it's a cultural tradition, but we wouldn't exactly, like, nope, rainbow flags, coming right for you. Okay, I got the source, um, military.com, $2.26 trillion. Uh, as of April 2021. It's like seven grand for every living American. So like 20 grand for a family of four. How many? So the, the Wait, so Iraq I've was seen, less? <laughs> Let, let's just that, Iraq Iraq take a step more. back here. <laughs> like if four trillion was the total, 2.26 is Afghanistan. How the hell did that happen? I mean, Iraq was just a, a full-blown, you know, conflict. Uh what the hell? I don't know. I, I could be wrong on 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 the on that count if it's the combined figure, because I I remember like there the analyses were always something like maybe six or eight. A lot of these, by the way, were like the numbers that keep getting passed around. That's why I wanted to just confirm it. So there was this trend in um, like the early Obama era. You had all of the um, the liberal sophisticati who would probably now be demanding a, a reinvasion of Afghanistan given their sort of cultural flip. Um, but at the time, like circa 2010, 
you have people writing these um, these pieces and doing these studies. Like, what was the ultimate cost of the, of the wars thus far in the Middle East, and what are their projected, um, you know, their projected costs? And they would always come out with these insane figures: eight trillion, ten trillion. Um, and I used to see those numbers get thrown around years and years later. Like, you know, I remember seeing those numbers getting thrown around during like the Trump, the early Trump election era. Like, you know, we've spent $10 trillion or something like that. So that's, I just wanted to be clear on what these figures, um, these figures actually are. But it seems like the $2 trillion figure is actually legitimate. So what I wanted to say was that last I saw the, the confirmed, this is confirmed by the U.S. military, so it's probably half right. Uh, confirmed death count of Taliban operatives since 2001 is at 60,000. So we spent $2 trillion to whack 60,000 guys. What kind of math are we looking at here? <laughs> Was it worth it to, to, to spend $2 trillion to kill 60,000 people? Well, I'm well, sure you're being it, rhetorical It's like the bid here. for a dollar game. It's like once you've well, already killed a lot spent more than first 60, trillion, like everything after that is uh, These are – so these the, the 60,000 figure is like the – the uh, what the Pentagon, I guess, considers uh, a Taliban operate, operatives, something like that. That's not including the civilian death yeah, count I just mean, of, they of Afghanistan. More than sixty thousand people. Yeah, yes, exactly. yes, they, they've, they've killed well over a hundred thousand people in Afghanistan. One hundred percent. But you, you, you look at it like, okay, we spent sixty thousand dollars to. I'm sorry, we spent two trillion dollars over two trillion to kill sixty thousand guys. And as part of that two trillion dollar expenditure, we built a massive fortress that apparently is now. We can't actually defend, so we spent a ton of money on something we can't do anything with. Um, we built an incredible amount of infrastructure for a country that didn't have a lot of it, uh, which we are now turning over to a supposed adversary. Uh, we spent a lot of money on this education racket that we had going on over there. I'm still not really clear on the the details of that where – we had these um, strange programs where we would send English lit majors uh, to Afghanistan to teach uh, young uh, Tajik tribeswomen to um, re read Geoffrey Chaucer. Like a very bizarre um, <laughs> program that we were yeah. running there. Uh, this is where you're. This is where you're confused, Hans. This is the thing. Like hundred thousand dead. If one Pashtun girl can learn to read Harry Potter. <laughs> that is the Molochian sacrifice ratio that we needed to achieve for this more <laughs> to well, be. Successful. I was trying to do it in my head and I got like 40 million and then I just whipped out my calculator and the calculator didn't have enough uh, decimal points on it for the, the <laughs> math we're dealing with. But it actually works out to, I was fairly close. It's $33 million per kill. Um, so, you know, if you want to talk about bang for your buck, like, um, if you take good. that amount of physical currency in hundred dollar bills and drop it on somebody, it will kill them. <laughs> you could put it in one of those guns they have at like stadiums where they shoot t-shirts at people. <laughs> the t-shirt cannon. Yeah. You could pack thirty-three million dollars as tightly as you can in the t-shirt cannon and shoot. 
Rachman or whatever. <laughs> oh my God, what a total calamity this whole thing is. And literally for nothing. For nothing. And this like, is so we're we coming achieved, up. It's not like our strategic credibility. It's like, well, you know, we were doing really great there until we decided to leave in ignominy. Like everybody knew, including the Taliban, that the U.S. a commitment from the United States. It's like opposite day. Like that's your death warrant when the United States is like, hey. You're a regional patsy. Would you like some money and training? Like, where did I go wrong in life? Do I need to find Allah that, like, I'm going to meet him probably sooner rather than later at this point? Like, <laughs> it's astonishing the extent to which the U.S. is just unable to even prop up regional warlords anymore. Like, that's that's something that's kind of imperial management 101. And the inability to actually focus on any sort of concrete strategic goal, instead like having these bizarre flights of fancy where we're we're gonna turn Kandahar into basil, it's it's absurd. And the fact that it like finally reified in the obvious endgame here, like it could have been played as a realist, like, oh, shit, yeah, this was a giant disaster. We won't do that again. But instead, even now, like, currently, Jen Pisaki is standing up on the podium and giving this eighth-grade guidance counselor speech about, well, the Taliban needs to think really hard about whether they want to come back to class and if they're prepared to interact in a positive way with everybody else in the neighborhood. So why don't you go and think about that? Meanwhile, you have Bill Crystal over at the Bulwark <laughs> literally rushed an article today calling for the reinvasion of Afghanistan. <laughs> it's like, what? what is going through these people's minds? See, that's well with Bill Crystal, it's easy. It's like, yeah, ah, I could have gotten another thousand dead goyim out of this. <laughs> what are you doing? Another trillion dollars. Do you know what the spread is on that? We need to keep that pump flowing. God, you know, I was thinking about this with uh, with 9-11 coming up. I think several of us in this scene and even amongst this group here, we were all kind of taking bets like, will the Taliban seize control of Kabul on 9-11. Uh, they managed to do it almost a whole month earlier. Uh, yeah, I really wasn't picking like, oh, yeah. Hey, <laughs> uh, uh, under <laughs> schedule and under budget. <laughs> Better than we can do. <laughs> I know. Oh, my God. It, it's embarrassing. And so I was thinking about this. 9-11 coming up. This is the original impetus for... This whole two trillion dollar um, adventure we've gone on, and I think it was uh, both Hank and Nick that just brought up that uh, they had offered to hand over this guy, this uh, this 
this former spook asset that we were pinning this whole thing on if um if we could just provide evidence yeah we'll, yeah we'll go get him for you yeah we don't want that guy he's like some some arab you know living in the mountains we don't want that you know we'll go we'll go take care of it but you have to tell us what he was doing and where how do you know he did this and of course the taliban government was ignored and then proceeded to uh have so several of its um, more mountainous regions in the north infiltrated by U.S. special operations, and uh, the rest is history. Then the bombing run started, and then you know it was a full invasion of Afghanistan. What's interesting in hindsight is, first of all, is it worth, is it possible, in hindsight, that? Um, Taliban were maybe right in the first place that there they were their suspicion that mm. maybe this guy didn't actually do it or there's something mm. else to this I'm starting to think I'm starting to think that the, the official story on 9/11 just doesn't add up it just doesn't make a lot of sense guys Something just doesn't feel right about this. I could be, I could be wrong. I don't know, man. Popular it's mechanics always, really convinced me. It's always funny when, the, when the domestic propaganda for the for the American public comes into like actual foreign policy, and someone out there in the world with some actual leverage like calls the bluff. It's always funny. <laughs> I mean, the Taliban literally called our bluff 20 years ago. It was, okay, yeah, yeah, he's an asshole. <laughs> we don't want that guy here. He works for you, but we don't want him here. So why don't you tell us what he did, how he did it, and we'll go take care of it for you. And what's interesting is that after the immediate invasion of Afghanistan, um, the couple, there was a couple interesting facets to the relationship uh, number one, a lot of the uh, early anti-terror activity that was primarily led by the um, by the United Kingdom in America uh, involved the utilization of local local troops. Or no, I'm sorry, not local troops. Uh, let's call them militias. These were members of the Northern Alliance. These were just sort of Pashtun uh, villagers, Pashtun warlords, you know, all kinds of characters, um, but mostly Pashtun. And they they were kind of asked, uh, have you you know have you seen anyone weird up in the mountains here? Uh, have you <laughs> uh, have you have you noticed any suspicious activity? And um, is there anyone kind of out of place? And they said, oh yeah, big time. There's lots of people up here out of place, and we'll go get them for you for a small fee. <laughs> we'll go get those guys. We'll bring them to you. And um, Sure enough, these uh, Northern Alliance members, Nuristanis and just various Pashtun, uh, they went up into the mountains, they found people, and they brought them back. And who are they bringing back? Uh, admittedly, they found people they thought looked like Arabs and uh, immediately handed them over to the U.S. security forces and said, this guy, bad guy, bad guy, let me tell you, he looks like an Arab. So he's definitely he's definitely a terrorist. You don't want them here. 
Uh, and then they uh, had their infamous cave searches. You guys remember this? So like circa 2002, we had the cave searching expeditions. Oh, I where... remember the famous infographic where it's like <laughs> yes. Donald Osama bin Laden's 12-story <laughs> hollowed-out mountain <laughs> living on top of a pile of anthrax in the basement <laughs> like a dragon. <laughs> Remember, they had like this anthrax missiles. and pornography. <laughs> it's like had level eight missiles. rare Pokemon cards, <laughs> level nine pornographic VHS tapes. Yeah, what a cool guy! Level, <laughs> oh my level god, level ten <laughs> chemical <laughs> weapons. We don't know. We can't say he doesn't have any. So here, my my point is the the many of the Le- level the- eleven is the Funko Pops. <laughs> Many of the people in, um, at, well, I guess level twelve is all of uh, Saddam's hidden WMDs, right? That's where they they stash them up in the mountains. Um, but anyway, so my point is, the people there were more than willing, if you paid them, to go up into the mountains and find people that they thought were suspicious, and then bring them down to you, and even offer to execute them for you, and. This kind of goes against the grain of the official narrative. If we, I know it's hard for especially our younger listeners. Wind the clock back 20 years. 20 years now. Wind the clock back. What was the initial premise? The initial premise was that not only was Osama bin Laden, this former CIA asset from Saudi Arabia, living somewhere in Afghanistan and plotting uh, a terror attack using airplanes against the Twin Towers with Saudi citizens. Um, He was living in Afghanistan. He plotted it from there, and he was being given protection by the Taliban government of Afghanistan. Uh, And as we already said, the Taliban government called their bluff 20 years ago and said, we don't think that's true. We're happy to take care of him for you, but you need to tell us how he did it, or what your proof is that he did this. And the Taliban were dissipated, but many of the Afghan people were more than happy to go out and find people they thought matched the description or matched a kind of vague idea of what could be a terrorist planner or something like that up in the hills. So this whole notion that like the country was giving safe harbor to the international, you know, terrorist syndicate, was just kind of laid bare as being, you know, just false. But this lie went on for twenty years. Of well, for, it went on for ten years. Of we're fi- we're trying to hunt this guy down, and in the process of hunting this one guy down, um, we ended up carpet bombing the entire country. And uh, and in the process of carpet bombing the entire country, we outlaid a couple hundred billion dollars in the recent, you know, kind of uh, <laughs> uh, omnibus spending bill, like probably circa 2000. All this money into rebuilding Afghanistan. We're going to give them a parliamentary democracy. We're going to give them elections and an economy and a. Uh, but the first thing that we did was in direct kind of, um, I don't know, opposition to our initial strategy of working with locals, mostly Pashtun, 
and asking them to do our dirty work for us, uh, we ended up going in and immediately staffing the government, civil service, bureaucracy, military command, and media with non-Pashtun. So the United States ceded a civil war, or what's going on right now, the revenge of the Pashtun, 15 years ago, give or take. They staffed it with Tajiks, Hazara, lots of Shia, lots of Uzbeks. Well, this is because Zog knows exactly nothing else but minority rule. That's what it's built on, and that's how it operates. It's empire's broad. You well, find it's baby's first like, imperial management is like if you remember one thing from your shitty high school European history class, it's like, ah, the British always taking the tribes and setting them against each other. It's like, ah, yes, I've discovered the secret, the dark secret of imperial management. You need to reward your friends and punish your enemies, but also shower money on your enemies and also shower money on everyone and make sure that you bomb wedding parties of your friends. You know, <laughs> the details get fuzzy, but we're pretty sure that minorities have some some role to play. And, you know, they were the bastards on our side. So you get a civil service job and you get a civil service job and suddenly they're hiring all the civil service positions. So not necessarily like an ideal situation. If the U S would have been like, okay, Northern Alliance, like pick your official favored ethnicities and we're just going to go full British with it. That could have worked, but it's fundamentally not compatible with the U S style of Imperial management. Yeah, and I think that ultimately you can argue that all of this was done intentionally. Like, you know, going back to what I was asking before, maybe the official story of 9-11 isn't accurate, guys, but could it be possible that we screwed up, quote-unquote screwed up, at every turn? We made, like, every bad decision. We spent way too much money. We created all these sort of endless programs and funds and warlord payoffs that went nowhere if, was it all just to skim was it all just a big racketeering exercise was it basically creating the conditions for civil strife and the necessity to stay there forever was that done just so we could continue kind of skimming and you know some like i said some smug idiot from dulles could continue to make extra cash on his like consulting job. Was that all this really was? I mean, a year after invading. Sure. Yeah. Like, I think that's, that's pretty obvious. And it wasn't just like quote unquote, the military industrial complex. Like everybody made their career on Afghanistan. The yeah. reason why we have a gigantic embassy compound in Afghanistan isn't because you need that many people to like do all the complex shit. It's because having an embassy in a conflict zone is a career opportunity. Like for the longest time for about like 15 years or so, 
if you joined the U.S. Foreign Service, you'd spend, like, first couple years in some random shithole, second couple years in Afghanistan or Iraq or one of the neighboring countries that's also, like, basically somewhere speaking Arabic where you're going to get shot at rotate back to dc for a couple of years and then like evaluate your life and decide whether you want to like make it and like maybe you get some juicy russia assignment or something but it was a core part of the career track and the progression for all of these things requires quote-unquote hot spots in order to advance so if you're some shitty like u.s funded ngo like it's a self-licking lollipop. The fact that you're fucking up the country further provides immense demand for your services. Mm-hmm. Even going into academia, like the volume of papers and conference reports written about various aspects of Afghanistan because like you get funded and you get read and you get cited, it's absolutely insane. Like, look up, uh, it just take a, take a moment and, like, browse any of the uh, DOD-affiliated uh, kind of, like, think tank working group type things. Like, the, uh, the papers on the uh, JSOC, uh, I think they call it JSOC University. That's not the real name, but that's their website, I'm pretty sure. Look up, like, the JSOC, like, list O academic papers in their library. <clears throat> and they're all, like... You know, analyzing the social graph of like Pashtun village X and what it says about counterinsurgency. And this is like mildly interesting, but the point isn't to actually learn anything from it, or you would have learned that you should get the fuck out of Afghanistan. The point is to have a focal point for all of this imperial energy that must be expended on fucking something or another like if you weren't in afghanistan you'd have to come up with some other place to invade like if you run out of places to invade then you know you gotta go fucking land uh, troop transports in antarctica and teach the penguins how to sodomize the, each other <laughs> yeah i think at this point my other my, my one worry is that um and it's probably pretty well founded. Uh, all of the lessons that they've learned in Afghanistan, all this training, and all of the contractor relationships and all the careers that have been made, none of that is going to stop. Those people, these are real people behind these things, and they don't want it to stop. It's you don't going to come home. That's what I'm thinking, and it's everything that they've. Yeah, I mean, you remember there. when they talked about like the the asia pivot it's going to be the domestic pivot it's it has to go somewhere and the problem is that that doesn't under the that doesn't make a nut for like the state department that doesn't make a nut for your like foreign sponsored ngo class i'd be really concerned if i was you know laos or indonesia or vietnam like there's suddenly going to be a lot of people that are very interested in helping you quote unquote develop as a counterweight to Asia because it's, it's the same shit. It's like, 
oh yeah i i read that paper once like now i'm a realist i'm basically henry kissinger so i look at my map and i see this country is kind of close to china so we got to go in there and we got to fuck it up because that's how you contain a country you look you look around it because i'm a realist now i believe in containment so I, instead of like, oh, you know, it's just, you know, for their own good, you know, now I'm ruthless and I look around and I find the countries around there and I fuck them up. And that's my grand strategy. I, I think that they, their first hit was going to be Burma. Yeah, lots, lots of different hats, but they're all small. <laughs> yeah, they all kind of sit, you know, just idly on the top of the head. They don't do much. Um no, I think that I think that Burma was going to be the um, the first sort of bell to be rung. It's interesting that um, this this clique that runs um, uh, the the uh, the old Irish guy from Delaware, Biden. Um, they were fascinated and obsessed with Burma right out of the gate. I mean, within a week of getting inaugurated, you were hearing about Burma in the news. I was thinking. When has Burma <laughs> ever been on the front page of anything? Like, who cares about Burma? Uh, but it was the immediate fixation of these people. And it wasn't long before there was an immediate military coup. And I think that the Burmese military, which um, by all accounts and everything I've read is actually a pretty sharp institution that uh, – is basically an anti-racist institution of some kind. It tries to, um, you know, sort of uplift everyone in in, in the country to uh, to have a role. Um, but anyways, uh, the military immediately, I think, realized, oh, oh, they're 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 focusing on us. Like they're interested in us. Well, we got to get rid of this like goofy woman that from the UN with a Jewish husband in London that's running trying to run the country. Uh, yeah, she's got to go like immediately. She's got to go tomorrow. Uh, so they got together, they got the army together and then she's gone. She hasn't been heard from since. So I think that whatever their next pivot is, it'll be a mix of coming here and in somewhere in Asia. But it seems like much of the world at this point has to – if any leader of any state – and I have to think every state has some smart people at, at its helm, um, maybe with the exception of America. Uh, but most of these states at this point have to see the writing on the wall. Like if you're small enough and, and, and not backed by somebody, you are a potential target for American interference. Like the Americans – We'll try and come in. Yeah, they, they will try and play a role. There, in your there country. is there's definitely something to be said actually about Burma and in this context because I don't want to attribute too much forward thinking to these people, but you know, I mean, Burma isn't insignificant. If they're getting out, if they're forced to leave Afghanistan, well, the next best place for opium production is the Golden Triangle. Yeah, that's the other totally undiscussed element. Um, apparently today, uh, Chris Murphy, who is the uh, another dumb Irishman, um, 
you know, he's from Connecticut, apparently. He's the senator. He uh, he admitted publicly that he saw heroin or, or poppy field production going on nine years ago that when he visited so Afghanistan. Funny. So here you have a sitting senator who now feels like, um, yeah, like, you know, uh, the war's over, so I guess I can just admit the things the CIA showed me. And he decides to start a Twitter thread where he goes into detail about seeing poppy field production uh, and then apparently turns to his colleague and says, so we're financing the war on dr- – or I'm sorry, we're financing the international drug trade. It's like, wow. <laughs> this is amazing. They're just Not admitting just financing it. the international drug trade, but it's always in plain sight to make was that the local farmers they were selling it to the Taliban. Like his whole story was like, well, it used to be the Taliban would just go in and take it. Then the Americans came in, so now they can sell their crop to the Taliban, and instead of getting the whole thing, they just collect the spread. <laughs> <laughs> tiger blood this is how you win yeah i think that there is something to be said on nick what you're saying uh this this aspect of the drug trade and it satiates a couple goals first of all they get to bill it to the dod as we're doing china containment uh then they get to bill it to um the uh, certain aspects of the government that are, you know, at least involved in like anti-drug proliferation, which probably secretly is drug proliferation, but who am I to who am I to judge? Uh, they probably want to satiate those people because those people need a payoff and uh, those people need work to do. Especially as a, it seems like the cartels are just sort of impenetrable um, down south now, so they will go over there with. Every single party satiated. Everyone's going to get their piece of the pie, something to do. Burma is a mess of a country. It has, unlike Afghanistan, there is, you do have the general Burmese majority or sort of highest, you know, plurality. Um, but that's a very loose concept, much looser than the concept of the Pashtun. Um, and it's it's a mess demographically, regionally. It's 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 a violent place, uh, and so it has all those dynamics of where there's already um, very little cohesion. The only cohesion is some kind of literal uh, military or ideological dictatorship. In this case, it's a military dictatorship. Uh, one of the few cultural forces that unites people is Buddhism. Uh, and along with, uh, you know, you can brand the human rights abuses, which they've been slowly talking about for the last 10 years, this Rohingya business, um, where this group of basically Bengalis, um, Muslims have been told that uh, they're not welcome anymore and they need to leave. Um, so I think that they have all of the prerequisites ready to go. But it appears as if the... Burmese military government uh, has foreseen this or just sort of logically arrived at this conclusion. Uh, And so they cooed the woman that was in charge, who was weak and probably working for the enemy. Um, And as I said, has a Jewish husband that lives in London, um, which is very peculiar. 
they got rid of her. The first thing they did was immediately field a uh, a meeting with the Russian. I'm sorry. I think it was the deputy minister of defense for Russia, uh, and a similar sort of attaché from China arrived in the country not long after. Um, so it appears as though the Burmese military, uh, seeing a a potential military, you know, American involvement, uh, has kind of sought to secure its own existence. Um, I can say the same for places like Laos, Cambodia, or Vietnam. Uh, Vietnam appears to be mostly bought in with the new American paradigm. Uh, Laos and Cambodia are kind of um, up in the air. Cambodia is much more friendly to China. But if they do want to try and access the next you know, global drug trade phenomena, um, they're going to have to find some way into that region. And uh, if Burma is not the way you do it, well, what's old is new again. I mean, this yeah. is this is what happened in this in the fifties and sixties, and then it wasn't until around the century that Afghanistan became the the new main source of opium. Yeah, it is interesting that as the the economic situation in the United States um, completely implodes, uh, there's this renewed attempt to gain access to the poppy fields again or just to to drug production in general and my thinking here is that many of the theories about why exactly um the the uh sort of the opioid crisis and the heroin crisis and the opium crisis and all these crises you know these drug crises sort of paralleled uh, almost exactly the deindustrialization of, uh, of the first major wave of deindustrialization for middle America. I do wonder if they, at this point, have a second wave planned. And the intention here is to secure yet another source of uh, reliable drug supply chains to kind of keep people satiated. Well, yeah, there is a second one planned. And this is a good segue, actually, because I mean, before it was, I mean, we know we've talked about it on the show a lot, but now you have this all in an accelerated format with the with the plague and the plague that they're never going to let go away. That's true. And yeah, you do need you need a, a constant opium influx to, you know, line the pockets of the Sacklers or Purdue Farm or whatever and uh, kill kill what's left of the white working class. Yeah, at this point that seems I mean it, it just kind of it matches up too well. Uh, you know, before the show, we were chatting about um, the the vaccine mandates for uh, for employers. Uh, and I want to read to you uh, a little snippet here. Federal judge has dismissed a lawsuit brought by 117 employees at Houston Methodist Hospital who were suing the hospital system over its COVID-19 vaccine requirement. In a five-page ruling issued Saturday, U.S. District Judge Lynn Hughes upheld the hospital's vaccination policy, saying the requirement broke no federal law. This is not coercion, said Hughes. Methodist is trying to do their business of saving lives without giving them COVID. It is a choice made to keep staff, patients, and their families safer. The 178 employees suspended by the hospital argue that the vaccines are unsafe and even experimental. 
the hospital has responded by saying that hundreds of millions of vaccine doses have already been administered. <laughs> so you have kind of a calamity unfolding here at home. Um, lots of people are refusing to indulge this. Um, the legal system is refusing to play a role or even to try and mediate it at all. Uh, judges appear to either be dismissing cases outright or not even taking them. Um, uh, the appeal system appears to not be working properly. You can basically argue that the courts have uh, have failed. And it's coming down to very, very um, pernicious requirements to uh, hold employment. So as the opportunities for actual employment continue to decline in America, there's less and less jobs available, there's less real work to do, there's less investment. Um, the jobs that are left are you know, increasingly being uh, are increasingly having contingencies attached to them or sort of strings attached. You see, you have to actually do this if you want to keep your job. You have to do this and this yeah. if you want to get a new one. It's almost like they don't want people working. Yeah. I mean, it's like you're, you're creating new barriers to the labor market by fiat. You're also creating travel restrictions. I mean, this, this, I've seen people like I. We've talked about the the plague stuff since it started on and off, but I've seen people kind of downplay it, and I can understand why uh, people don't want to get involved in kind of the uh, uh, let's say the the Alex Jones kind of stuff, for lack of a better description. But really, I, I think this is probably one of the most significant things that's happened in America in, in my lifetime, easily. I mean, it's not just America either. It's the entire fucking world. The consequences of this are going to be... Yeah, it's more than 9-11. Decades on. Uh, if, I can, if I can add to that, there's a well, couple yeah, of... Yeah, 9-11, uh, you can't be like, oh, by the way, like an, another building, like just... Uh, just a free fall collapse like 10 years later uh, must have been caused by what happened on September 11th. <laughs> but, but with this, they can. They can keep this fucking monkey going. Yeah. It will okay, so the, there's, a, there's a couple of uh, news items I've got on this topic. Um, I sent this link to you guys. This is from uh, congress.gov. Somebody sent that to me. I definitely don't hang out and spend my free time wasted on government websites but uh this is pertinent uh there is a bill uh i guess hr 4980 means house of representatives to direct the secretary of homeland security to ensure that any individual traveling on a flight that departs from or arrives to an airport inside the entire united states or a territory of the united states is fully vaccinated against covid19 and for other purposes and for other purposes oh i missed that part um so there you go. That was sort of predictable. I don't know if it'll pass. Uh, and then I got a second one real quick. Uh, the, I think this is more of the, in the positive uh, side of the ledger. Uh, Southwest Airlines, American Airlines, and Delta Airlines will not require employees to get vaccinated, breaking with United Airlines mandate that workers get vaccinated by October 25th or faced getting fired. Um, you know why they did that? It was because the friggin' pilots and uh, airline workers went on strike or threatened to go on strike. And so, you know, I've been accused of being like Captain Capitalism or something. I 
I, I, I'm not, I, I, I'm not a shill for oligarchy. I basically just, uh, you know, want people to work hard, but also be given Are you a, a shill to, for Jewish power, brother? To earn, I want people to earn their <laughs> way, but you know, th- there's, there's definite oligarchic power that needs to be confronted. And I think unions are uh, a traditional way of doing that. And I have no problem with that. And I think this is a good example of where people can stand up for themselves. Um, so those are the two items I wanted to bring up. Yeah, I mean, are they going to be going down to the southern border and sticking like cotton swabs up Beaner's noses? <laughs> is that like this is such uh, a fucking no? Of joke, course not. Dude. No, those like, people are more The Canadian border is completely shut down, and it's effectively enforced. You know, if you try to cross the Canadian border, apparently they're demanding at the border crossing that you show proof of uh, your uh, product consumption. Here's what's and here's what's very curious. Um, you have effectively a, an an unfolding labor market revolt going on in America right now, and they are preparing to flood the country with your replacements. That is the best way I can really encapsulate when I'm trying to connect a lot of these things. I can encapsulate this. They know a lot of people are going to push back. A lot of blue-collar people are going to push back. They're not going to go along with this. Um, I think that they are going to start finding legal methods to uh, enact mandates at state and federal levels, Uh, meaning that not only can you, you have to display it to do certain things, you have to get it no matter what. And I think that there will be lots of people who will not go along with it. They'll lose their job and government will basically strip employment from them. And the country is being in the process of being flooded, not just at the border. All the visa programs are being expanded. They're creating new visa programs. Everything that Trump attempted to do with the uh, that O-1 program and the H-1B program and all these programs uh, – have been undone effectively. And I can tell you from some recent anecdotal experience, uh, corporate America has uh, kind of rediscovered uh, overseas contracting. There was a there was a time when not not that long ago, I, sh- I shouldn't frame it that way, but r- somewhat recently, uh, there was a trend where there was more onshoring for employment especially in the tech side and the white collar side. Uh, part of it had to do with, I think, fear of potential you know, regulations around offshoring jobs or hiring uh, internationally. Uh, and some of it had to do with, I think, problems during the pandemic. But corporate America has really started to kick up the overseas contracting. So the visa programs are wide open. You're having you know, a total flood come in at the southern border with all kinds of characters from the whole planet, from Cameroon to Kyrgyzstan. You have people coming in through that southern border. And on top of that, the corporate, you know, corporate America has really, really ramped up overseas contracting. To me, 
that's a sign that you know everyone is kind of prepared to just phase out Americans who don't go along with this from the job market. Their their replacements will be, you know, sort of found within the next year or two, depending on what they do. For certain things like the airlines, that's a little trickier. They'll they'll figure out a way to solve that. They're going to have to wait a few years. The airline unions are just too powerful, and uh, to be you know to be honest, you have to go through a lot of training and accreditation. There's actually a lot of rules that come into place for being uh, to work on an airline. So those people will be safe temporarily. Uh, if you are a programmer, if you are uh, an on-site engineer, if you are a carpenter, if you are working in retail, if you are a truck driver, uh, they will probably you know start to try and mandate. You not only get the vaccination, just play constant proof, you go along with a, a vaccination plan, which is I think what they're going to unveil at a both employer and government level uh, because this talk, this booster talk is now um, sort of beyond the pale and they're, they're going to do it. Um, so you'll be on some kind of literal plan where you plan out when you're going to be getting your booster vaccinations, which one you're getting, all that sort of thing. Um, and if you disagree with this, if you push back, consume, yeah, consume pharma product, get excited for next pharma product. Yeah. And if you push back, if you do anything to try and stop this, um, your replacement's already ready. If you're blue collar, you're, you know, you're lower on the wage pole. We have 10 guys from Oaxaca that are going to do your job for you. If you're a programmer and you're an engineer, we got a guy in Kiev or a guy in uh, Karachi that's going to do your job for you. And if we want to yes. bring someone and, here. And on the working side of that, I mean, what's incredible about that is if you get for not going along with the pharma scheme, well, the beauty about under the table illegal labor is it's under the table. It's fucking incredible, dude. Yeah, and this this is starting to look like pretty much every country the last century did that experimented with this in sort of market control, especially labor market control. Uh, you have the rise of the black market. So I think for the, you know, the United States for the first time will have uh, a black market for relatively normal activities. This is always the strength of the U.S. and of kind of uh, Western countries like it, um, you know, with the same either kind of Anglophile background or I think, you know, Germany and, and France to an extent or similar Norway. Um, where most normal, most labor activity that people would regard as normal uh, is not really found on the black market. You can, you can find versions of people doing stuff, you know, kind of truck drivers doing illegal hauls, programmers, you know, becoming hackers, but it's much more rare. You don't have a black market to avoid government uh, control of your labor necessarily. But that'll be changing. You will probably have to survive through that and that alone. That's a great point. Yeah, it's basically agorism, actually. As much as that was kind of a meme, there's some truth to it as far as you can imagine that situation playing out. 
Yeah, no, we've come full circle. We're back to libertarianism. <laughs> what I love about this whole situation is that, like, the populace of the country is slowly being instructed in a lot of very interesting uh, techniques and being introduced to a lot of interesting networks about who exactly like how let's say that you needed some paperwork and you you lost your paperwork you're you're a good boy you've been vaccinated but i mean try getting your replacement uh replacement paperwork for any of this shit like yeah let me just call up the fucking nogales uh walmart that i got vaccinated at like two years ago and get me a copy of that paperwork it's just not tractable so you know a guy who knows a guy who can you know fix your paperwork up for you the same way that the uh just the whole slow boil thing it's like it only works so it only works if you don't literally turn up the temperature so slowly that you evolve to be immune to it and i can't tell like if they're just being excessively cautious or what, but every single thing that they attempt has such an obvious remediation strategy associated with it that it's, it does seem to be like hardening the population against disruptions of this kind. Like the, the amount of people who are now effectively resilient to shutdowns, like, where previously it was like, oh shit, well, if Walmart closes for a week, then I'm basically fucked. Like, people have learned about these levers that the regime has, and they're rapidly developing, you know, even the most banal countermeasures. Like, they work well enough that those levers become ineffective. I mean, the census is the perfect example. The drop in the white percentage of the uh, population is not explainable by demographics. It's not like they all died. And the effective birth rate that the white population is showing would imply that, like, the proportion should be, like, a solid uh, 5% higher than it shows in the statistics. But the other category... It's like, holy shit, somebody got a clue that you fill out the fucking form to optimize for whatever you're filing the form in order to do. Not right. some ancient Anglo-Saxon notion of fair play. It's like, it's a form. You bubble it in and you send it off. It's not, it, the truth value is orthogonal to what you put on the foam to get your program that's actually that's interesting because i i totally forgot about that until you brought it up this this recent become a nigger to <laughs> the system i forgot about this report even though it came out like this week until you brought it up um the the absolutely incensed just incensed takes from the likes of Jennifer Rubin and Bill Crystal, you can you can hear the hands rubbing. You, it's it, grotesque. On one hand, you have these people, 
demanding the reinvasion. The scales grinding together. Yes, this the the millstones grinding together. <laughs> you you can these people are on the one hand demanding the reinvasion of the whole Middle East to for honor, and on the other hand they are publicly talking about yes this is a positive development we need to prevent white minority rule now it's not just enough to prevent a white majority rule we have to prevent the white minority from taking power i mean it's it's comically insane uh, i don't i don't think that the soviet union you know, for as much as much heat as the Soviet Union takes, as much mockery as it takes, it never reached these levels of of pure, uh, you know, sort of comical malice. Where not even, I mean, you could pass it off as a joke. It's it's at the stage where if someone was impersonating these people and trying to make them look bad, I would believe it. Like, there's no way that these people are actually going to be this on the nose from here on out. The only other country I can think of that uh, has this similar dynamic, and it's totally – it's not played for laughs, is uh, actually ironically South Africa. And South Africa is a, is a you know, kind of a hellscape where it's not just that you're, you're, you're run by like uh, egotistical dumb Bantus. You are actually uh, part of a psychotic fever dream. Of these said Bantus in their sort of worldview, where if you are a white South African, you see, you are expected to uh, kind of maintain the basic functioning of the country. It's still to this day, it's expected of you. It's expected of you to play your part, to be a good citizen, to work, to maintain the infrastructure, to not cause problems, and to, whenever demanded, satisfy Bantu egotism. That that is your your job. Uh, but on the on the other hand, you are also it is demanded of you that you do not participate in white minority rule. You have you have no real exercising of of any sort of sovereignty over yourself as a collective whole or in, in anything even close to that. And it's a, it's a, it's an insane country that recently has been enveloped in yet more sort of civilization ending riots, uh, and supply chain shortages. And that's, you know, like the reactions to that report. And when they came out basically mirrored, the sort of uh, in- insanity of people like Jacob Zuma and, and Bantu egotism from South Africa, where you both expect whites to like be comfortable with their current position and not to not to talk about it, but the, the report will be publicized and it'll be thought of as a good thing. But you shouldn't talk about it. But we're but we are going to make it public. But don't mention it. But we are going to make sure that we talk about it on every single channel. But don't you ever talk about what it, you know, what it amounts to. It's like, it's like a Kafka-esque nightmare, and all it ends with is your country being taken from you. It's it's completely insane. The that report and the reactions to it were, were unreal. Yeah, I've often made the comparison to South Africa myself. Many people will instinctually look to the demographic numbers and 
see the United States paralleling what Brazil has more become. But I, I look past that in the sense that that's true, but I don't think it's as relevant as actually how the country itself is run. Uh, South Africa, in my opinion, is run in a way very much like the United States in the sense that there is a group of people that effectively have a heritage of constructing what uh, most people would regard as modernity in that country. And they are uh, consistently maligned by the ruling class. That's not the case in Brazil. Um, you know, we can get confused by sort of majority stakes or minority rights and all that stuff. But the reality is uh, power is what rules. And the clear case of power in South uh, Africa and America is the uh, the white folk don't have it. At least they don't anymore. Uh, in Brazil, however, there is a ruling class that uh, doesn't always wear those small hats. And that's pretty consistent throughout Latin America, even in Mexico. Uh, you know, the Castizo groups are, are very much in charge and they want to keep it. And they're not ashamed to do that. Uh, unlike in the United States and perhaps in South Africa, South Africa does have the problem of just being outnumbered um, and apartheid just didn't work um, for a million different reasons. But the, um, yeah, the, the, the tendency is, I think, more towards South Africa than Brazil. South Africa, though, it couldn't exist without international collaboration from, you know, Big Zog. Uh, it's not possible for Negroes to rule over the white man. That's just, I mean, they can kill all of the white people. That is possible for sure. But you can't actually like continue to have that kind of farce go on. Uh, Negroes can't rule. They can't rule anything. They can't even rule other Negroes. So it, it's not, you know, without without America, the the power system behind it, it, it would not continue to function even in its zombie state. Well, that's, that's the... Um... That's the ultimate irony, too, is that the United States arguably was the much more so than the Soviet Union at certain points was the chief uh, progenitor of hostility towards the apartheid regime. Like the apartheid regime would would still be around if not for the kind of continuous interloping of the American government. It's not even. It's not even like controversial to say that. Did the Soviet Union play a role? Yes. Did Mozambique play a role? Yes. Was there, uh, you know, lots of little factions running around? Did the Chinese play a role? Did, did so and so play a role? Everyone played a role. The, the United States played probably the largest role. At one point, there was a planned invasion or some kind of blockade that was going to be, you know, we were going to partner with the Soviet Union. At one point during the Cold War, to to kind of remove racism from South Africa, there. The the ultimate irony here is that we took the 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 racial demographic and and structural problems of South Africa and imported them here. I mean, quite purposefully. And I'm not – it's very curious to me why our elites did that. Why did they sort of destroy this you know, marginally successful and, and marginally well-run and well-integrated um, 
That's exactly art. why they destroyed it. They can't have an example yeah. to inspire others. I mean, look, I, you know, I'm not about oppressing any group. I just want uh, to live amongst my, my own. And uh, they, they had worked out a system in South Africa whereby the, the black South Africans actually were much better off uh, health-wise, uh, uh, economically, many would argue, than they are today. But that doesn't matter because, you know, on the surface of it, it looked like some kind of, uh, you know, racist regime that uh, goes against the ideology of the neoliberal. And so I think that's why they had to destroy it. Well, and the capitalists and the Jews still have access to the things of real value. South Africa. Yeah, they, they didn't oh, ever lose access to the to the diamond mines or to the mineral markets or anything like that. So and nothing of, of extreme value to them was ever lost in that sort of racial transfer. And honestly, that is the that that is exactly what's going on here. As long as access to the key markets, to the capital markets, and the resources, and the supply chains, to the infrastructure, and to the civil service. Are not interrupted, are not majorly interrupted. These plans will continue. They will continue unabated. The same thing is happening in Canada. Yep. The same thing is happening in Australia. The same thing is happening to every country kind of similar to ours. Uh, and as long as there's not a real interrupt uh, to sort of the, the establishments or the, the global establishments' ability to perform their their desired functions, uh, nothing will change. It is interesting going back to Afghanistan. Uh, that appeared to be the role that Afghanistan was going to play. It was going to play a, a role uh, similar, I think, to what Canada played, Mo- much more so than uh, maybe on a smaller scale, but much more so than I think even the 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 the, the, the geostrategic whatever kind of rationale they had for it. Oh, we know we're near the Khyber Pass and we can kind of choke up the Chinese or the Russians and Central Asia. Uh, I think that turning it into a sort of resource excavation state um, with a you know quasi government and you know creeping liberalism, you know the condonement of the Bakabazi, which would have immediately kind of Entried into just you know the gay rights agenda, which is an immediate death knell for any sort of culture or uh, sort of um, self-sustaining state, you know, national government. Uh, I think that that was always the plan: was to basically turn the place upside down, make it unlivable, and just take the resources out. 